Forces. Good afternoon. It's WCBN's Living Writers Program, and I'm Amanda Yuli sitting in for T. Hetzel today. That was uh, music from the movie The Mission, uh, Climb, and that was chosen by our wonderful guest for this afternoon, uh, Chris Van Alsberg. Welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. So glad to have you here. It's uh, December 18th, 2017. We're taping a program for the Living Writers Show here in the Ann Arbor studio. Um, and we are here with author and illustrator Chris Van Alsberg. He is a 1972 University of Michigan graduate of the School of Art and Design, who later studied at RISD, um, and whose art has been exhibited widely, including at the Whitney Museum of Art. He is the author-illustrator of 19 picture books and illustrator of three others. Do I have that correct? Did I miss one? I'll, I'll take your word for it. Okay. I, I'm not keeping track. <laughs> I think that's pretty close. Okay. Um, he's the winner of two Caldecott medals and one Caldecott honor, among numerous other awards, the National Book Award, the Regina Medal, the Boston Globe Horn Book Award, and he is also well known by way of film adaptations of his books, The Polar Express, Jumanji, and coming out this holiday season, Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle. Welcome to you, Chris. Thank you. So glad you. you're here. Um, you have had a long and magnificent career in picture books, and I wonder if you could tell us how you came to them. Um, well, my interest in, uh, in college was almost uh, exclusively sculpture. I sort of talked my way into the University of Michigan. Uh, what do you mean you talked your way? <laughs> well, when I was it. when I was in um, when I was in high school, I, I grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, mm -hmm. and being uh, you know it was a <clears throat> excuse me it was a um, uh, it was a good school, and and, and many uh, seniors from that school applied to U of M, and as a result, the school would the college or university would actually send uh, an admissions person to the school. And you could meet with that person in the guidance counselor's office and go over your, uh, your transcript and your test scores, and you could be admitted on the spot. That's unusual. Well, yeah. 
Not then, because that's, that's the way it happened. That's now, happened. now, it, it, I mean, it's, it contrasts so sharply with the uh, the weeks and months of anxiety that you have to wait. <laughs> but, but really, in an afternoon, you'd find if you were thumbs up or thumbs down. So, uh, I signed up to speak to the U of M uh, admissions person. Went down, had my appointment in uh, in the office with him, and um, I hadn't really looked at the application very carefully because you were supposed to uh, identify on the application what you were interested in, what college within the university you were likely to have a plan. Yes. Most people checked off LSA, but that wasn't necessarily going to be everyone's choice. And and he asked me what my choice would be because I hadn't checked anything off. And I told him I was undecided. And and I continued to look at the uh, the form there and and uh, one of the choices was identified simply as uh, uh, School of A and D. And I asked him what that was. And he says, well, that's the School of Architecture and Design. And uh, I said, you mean it's like the art school? He says, well, that's exactly what it is. It's the art school and it's combined with the uh, architecture school. Uh, and I said, gee, not having really given it a lot of thought. <laughs> I said, it sounds spontaneous. That, that sounds, that sounds, it probably was, uh, you know, when I reflect on it, if you were going to, uh, if you're going to try to, to, in a, in a film uh, biography show it, uh, I would have been this 17 year old uh, and I would have sort of turned my head away from the admissions guy. And you could have seen the reflection of the, uh, of the windows in my eyes. And I, I would have been flashing back on being a kindergartner. Uh, playing with clay and mm. doing finger paint. And then I would have come back into the moment. And having reflected on that experience, I would say, well, that's great. I'd love to do art. Not really aware of what it would mean to become an art student uh, in a college. But I said to him, uh, I think that sounds good. Why don't I? Why don't we put me down for School of Architecture and Design? Kind of a why not decision. Right. And, but, well, like. So he looked at my, uh, he looked at my transcript. And he saw that um, uh, there was no art on it because I hadn't studied <laughs> art in high school, and I felt challenged. Uh-huh. I felt challenged by that. It was funny that I, I I committed myself so fully to an idea that had formed in my head ten seconds earlier. <laughs> but I, I went all in, and I told him, "Well, it's brave, <laughs> brave, foolhardy, maybe I don't know, delusional." Uh-huh. Uh, but I said to him, uh, "Well, my uh, my own." Skills had advanced to the point where I was not really benefiting from what the what I could get from the high school art classes, and I studied privately uh, on weekends. And I'd set up a little sculpture studio on my front porch and and did some painting, uh, did some painting up in my room, and he was impressed. And uh, had you had you done those things? No, 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 no. I, I hadn't done yeah. hadn't done anything close. This to is it. an amazing uh, on the well, spot. Well, this is this is a very long way to 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 describe why when I got to the University of Michigan, and I and I found that I was among a group of people who actually had been studying on weekends. Yes. And they went, you know, they went to a school of, uh, you know, uh, I guess there was a school of arts, like a magnet school in Detroit. So mm-hmm. uh, they came out uh, with a skill level much higher than mine. And when I saw how well they could draw, I made the assumption that that was a gift they were born with, uh, uh, one which I was not born with. And, uh, and that encouraged me to look for something else I could do well and, uh, and possibly be successful. So yes. I was drawn to the sculpture department because as a, uh, as a boy around middle school, 
I was a, uh, a, a terrific model builder. I built model boats, model planes, model cars, uh, and was happy uh, for the solitude and, and the sort of fantasies that I would get involved with. Because when I would build a model boat, I would imagine myself on the boat and while I was building it and rigging it. Uh, so I was involved in it as, a, uh, as an imaginative exercise, not just one of craftsmanship. Your and brain skill. was involved in it. Everything was working, and I really yeah. enjoyed it. Uh, and it was a skill that I put aside when I was in high school. Um, not many you know, high school kids build models. And, uh, but when I got to University of Michigan and found as a freshman that uh, I, I was intimidated by the drawing skills I saw all around me, uh, I remembered that I had this skill and, the, and this interest in building things and making things with my hands. So that's why uh, when I was a, so- a sophomore, I decided that I would just study sculpture, and that would be the thing I would do, and I, I enjoyed it a great deal and, and um, uh, got my degree in sculpture at Michigan, and then I went on and got my graduate degree at RISD in sculpture. Also in sculpture. Right. So uh, that's a that's that's an answer that doesn't really satisfy the question, which is, how did I get into uh, illustration? <laughs> so after I graduated from Rhode Island School of Design, I had a, uh, uh, a studio. I set up a studio in Providence, Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. And it was an old industrial building. Unbeknownst to me, the landlord was uh, a little on the cheap side. He would turn the heat off in the building at around 5 o'clock. And it had been my habit as a graduate student, as, an, as, as a young, filled with energy artist, to work even in the evenings. Sure. Uh, but it was not possible to sculpt with mittens on, which is what would have been required. <laughs> uh, so when I found that the studio was uh, inhospitable past five, it occurred to me I needed a hobby. And so I thought uh, a hobby for me uh, that would be... Uh, sort of an extension of my artistic interests mm-hmm. would be simply to get a nice little drafting table, put it in my apartment, and draw pictures at night. You had heat in your apartment. We did. <laughs> Good. <laughs> we had heat in the apartment. And, uh-huh. and, uh, and so I started doing that. I, I set up a little drawing studio. Well, can't call it a studio. It was a corner of a room. But I, I, in a corner of a room, I, uh, I set up uh, my drafting table, pencils, paper, and I started drawing pictures. And uh, those pictures were somewhat narrative. Namely, they were pictures that sort of told a story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not sure why I was uh, inclined to m- m- draw that kind of picture, but it was what uh, what held my interest. And, uh, and, and so I did those. And, and, and over a period of time, through a few intervening uh, sort of events, uh, some of those pictures Actually, my wife took them to a publisher in, in Boston. Mm-hmm. And uh, even though this was at a time when I was still mostly busy in my sculpture studio, um, the, uh, the editors that she showed this work to in Boston uh, were pleased with them. Uh, they gave my wife and indirectly me encouragement when she returned. <laughs> okay. It's very difficult for artists to promote themselves because it's brutal. Uh, of course it is. I mean, it's one thing to submit a a, um, a manuscript through the mail and get a, you know, a few months later, if you're lucky. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, I don't really know all that because I, I didn't have to suffer through it. But <laughs> but submitting a manuscript and then getting a letter, that's, uh, you know, that's unpleasant <laughs> to make you unhappy. <laughs> Depending but, on what the letter says, but yes. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. But to actually walk uh-huh. into a, an art director or an editor's office and have them look at the work in front of you and, and, and make different expressions yeah. and you're sweating it out. So Brutal. My, yeah, so... Yeah. So my wife, I had no interest in subjecting myself to that kind of judgment. So it was my wife who took these drawings to, to Boston. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, as I say, she found one editor at Houghton Mifflin Company who was uh, uh, very interested in them and sent back some stories for me to illustrate, uh, provided I was interested in doing it. And the stories were uh, not interesting to me. They were fairly conventional stories that often uh, included little little animals who were placed in situations that young children might find themselves in, mm-hmm. and the little animal will triumph through mm-hmm. some sort of adversity. <laughs> but it would require drawing, you know, bunnies that wear backpacks and things like that yeah. and, and rode on school buses. I don't see a lot and, of that in your work. <laughs> well, it, 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 there's none of that in my work, and, and there wasn't uh, any sign of, of it in the examples that this editor had seen, but nonetheless, he was curious, I guess, to see if I would give it a shot. And I told him, no, I'm not. Uh, But he was very encouraging. He said, well, I I would like to publish your work, but uh, if you really want to be able to control the subject matter of the pictures that you make, the best way to do that is to also write the story that you'll illustrate. Right. Uh, I told him I've never written anything before aside from letters home and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, you know, uh, give it a shot. I'm, 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 I'm not gonna, I'm not telling you I'm going to publish anything <laughs> you write, but you should, you should give it a try. Cause you're, you're the imagery in your work suggests that you could probably do it if you put your mind to it. So I did. And, uh, so I wrote a, a book called the garden of Abdul Gazazi. That was my first book in 19, 19- 79, 78, 79. Mm-hmm. And I uh, finished it up. It was obviously in black and white because I had not learned any of the techniques of uh, picture making as a sculpture major. But I knew how to use a charcoal pencil because that's what I used when I drew pictures of the sculpture I would make. Mm-hmm. So I made these charcoal drawings of uh, for the Garden of Abdul Gazazi. And I thought that that would probably be the end of it, that I could now put into my uh, little bucket list, I, I would now be a published author and I could yes. go on to getting a patent or something. Yes. You know, but I, <laughs> I, uh, I, I uh, had that book published and much to my surprise, because it's an odd story. It, it, uh, it's inconclusive. It doesn't really, uh, it, it proposes a mystery to a child, but does not solve it. Uh, and the drawings were in black and white. My editor was encouraging to me, but he told me, you know, don't get your hopes up. But it, it turned out to f- it found an audience. It did. And uh, I didn't do another book for a year or so. Uh, but then I thought, when I looked back at Gazazi, Garden of Abdul Gazazi, I thought that uh, I could probably, if I gave it a second try, do something better. So I, I did a second book. And then many more after that. Yeah, right. One of the things, one of the most fascinating things about what you just said to me was when you talked about coming to the University of Michigan and seeing your peers um, having that higher level of illustration experience. Um, and 
of course, you are an extremely accomplished illustrator now, but thinking about the the idea that we all have that other people may be born with with something that we don't have um, and which can feel insurmountable. I just wonder how you cross that path between feeling like it was something that wasn't for you. Uh, I, we see this in young writers, you mm-hmm. know, sometimes yeah, right. when, when young kids are starting to write or trying to write, they say, Oh, other kids are much better at writing than I am. It's not something I could do. Um, but how do you, how did you come to Well, that? initially I, I didn't because that's why I, that's why, sculpture. <laughs> that's why I escaped to the sculpture studios. Uh-huh. But, but the process of making sculpture required that I have uh, be able to visualize the thing I was going to make. And then it was obviously more useful if I could draw that thing I imagined. And so I, I learned to draw things out of my imagination that I was going to build. Mm-hmm. So that helped my drawing skills a little bit. Um, and then when I, when I went through graduate school... Continued that. I, I still can't. Um, I still can't recall. I think the first time I actually sat down to draw. This is a. It's a kind of a nebulous sort of description for image making. But I drew a picture, and and by a picture I mean not simply the uh, uh, a representation of an object I was going to make. Uh, I I I mean a a, a rectilinear <laughs> <laughs> shape filled from edge to edge with subject matter, and the subject matter could be a still life, it could be a landscape, it could be figures. I'd never really done that before, but I sat down to do that when I was trying to get out of the cold of my sculpture studio. And um, I'm not sure... Well, because it was just my hobby, I didn't have to compare myself to other people. And because I had no ambition that it would ever be published or... right or anything, I was not inhibited by what, if I thought about it for, for, for very long, inhibited by my deficiencies. I just drew because I had time on my hands and I I liked holding on to a pencil and it worked mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how I got better, I think I, I uh, looked at other things, uh, you know, looked at the work mm-hmm. of others, not children's book artists, really, uh, other artists and and um, so that was uh, I was I was an autodidact and and not daunted by it because I was not required to uh, once a week put my work up on a board with a bunch of other people's work and say, right. oh, God, <laughs> <laughs> or wait for the publisher to critique it right. or, or right. anyone else. It sounds like you did it for yourself. That's really remarkable and beautiful. Uh, what about sculpture now in your life? Do you, do you practice as a sculptor or do any other art in your life? Uh for probably about five, four or five years, I sculpted and drew and wrote at the same time. But uh, I saw that there was a point where they uh, were kind of interfering a little bit with each other. That when mm-hmm. I was when I was making a piece of sculpture, I was thinking I I should be back in the studio drawing. And when I was drawing, I I was wondering mm-hmm. about trying to finish this thing in the sculpture studio. So I I finally uh, I mean it wasn't a coin flip really, but I I uh, did the went with the writing and illustrating path. I took that path mm-hmm. instead. Mm-hmm. I still make little things out of clay, and uh, I, I make uh, not really models, but I, I'm i quite good at uh, building complex things out of erector sets. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's lovely. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so when you're, when you're approaching a new story or a new book project, can you talk about what kind of emerges first for you? They, they naturally fit so well together, the, the pictures and the text, but I wonder how that comes to you in, in your mind first. Do you think of the, the images first? Not really, though I, I can't say that, um, well, it's changed over the years. When oh, please I wrote, tell me. Yeah. yeah, so when I wrote the first book, and I had never written anything before, I was at the time drawing pictures of ornate um, gardens from English country homes. I'm not sure why, but, but when I was doing these things in black and white, and if I was playing around, I, I was working from a variety of photographs I had from uh, old Country Life magazines that were printed in England. And so I had pictures of these gardens. So I wasn't actually drawing the photograph, but I was using them for inspiration and sort of changing the quality of light. And I was ending up with these kind of strange, surreal, even ominous pictures. And I, and I liked them. And so it was right about that time that my that this editor in Boston suggested that I think about writing a story. So I had these pictures and sketches of topiary gardens and things like mm -hmm. that. And I thought, well, the, the topiary garden by itself was interesting and had a kind of ominous quality to it. And I had this idea that I would have a dog running through the garden. And so I placed a dog in the garden. Uh, and this wasn't a finished picture. I was just sort of sketching. And then I thought, well, why was the dog running? And then I thought, well, maybe the dog's running because someone's pursuing the dog. And so I, mm -hmm. so I sketched in a little boy who was chasing the little white dog through the topiary garden. And then I said, well, uh, why would he be chasing the dog? Is, is the dog done something wrong? Or maybe the garden is a forbidden place and he's trying to get the dog back. You know, so then I would ask myself a few other questions, like, is the dog, does the dog belong to the boy? If this is a forbidden garden, whose garden is it? And why is it forbidden? And so I was just answering these questions while I was sketching. So I think two things were happening at once. I was, I was seeing all these visual images of the boy chasing the dog and <clears throat> this garden. Uh, but I was also... Uh, a, ma a narrative was, was forming itself in my own head without me actually working on it, but only interrogating myself and then answering the question. Sounds like a dialogue between the author and the illustrator of a book that, uh, that you did both of. We're going to take a short break and hear your next selection of music. We'll hear Aquarium from the Carnival of the Animals. Oh, um, and uh, that's played by our wonderful engineer in the WCBN studio today, Frank Yuli. Um, so this is the WCBN Living Writers Program. Um, here is the Aquarium.
You've got the Living Writers Show here on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm Amanda Yuli. We're here today with picture book author and illustrator Chris Van Allsburg, who chose that music, The Aquarium. Can you tell us why you chose um, that p- particular piece of music? Uh, well, I think uh, for the same reason uh, I chose the first piece, the uh, from The Mission, uh, they are terrific examples of the, the power of, of music to almost immediately uh, produce an emotional response without lyrics. Yes, <laughs> and, and uh, they're they're very potent. When I uh, I remember watching uh, a, an advertisement for I think it was Cadillac cars, and they and it was it was a ad that basically was about the history of Cadillac automobiles, and they had some uh, old archival images of, like, Marilyn Monroe and Cassius Clay. But it was also an ad about, about um, America and Americans. Mm-hmm. And, and they played this music, uh, which I recognized, but I, I couldn't identify it. But it practically brought tears to my eyes. You know, absent the music, the ad would not have produced that <laughs> emotion. But, right. but this whole this whole kind of a powerful sort of nostalgic idea about a, an idea of America, accompanied by that music, was was uh, really moving to me. And so I, 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 I hunted it down. And then I realized that uh, where it came from, I had heard it before. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, the Saint Sands piece, uh, same thing. I've I've heard that piece all through my life, and it never fails to just instantly transport me because it's it's such a uh, a, a kind of a fabulous and enchanting i guess that that may be the sort of musical embodiment of enchantment <laughs> <laughs> that's well put um and, and I think that sort of powerful mood, um, a mood like that, is conveyed to me, at least when I look at uh, your pictures and your picture books. Uh, well, I, 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 take, I would take that as high praise. I mean, <laughs> um, I, I know some writers and, uh, and artists who, who strive to be able to uh, make something that in words pictures or the combination of the two could actually create that kind of feeling. I think it's a very high bar, but (laughs) I think you've done it. Um, and I think that one of the things when I was listening to that music just now, I was thinking about a few words you said a moment ago about uh, your images in your first book being sort of, I think you said surreal and ominous, which are not words that you associate with children's publishing very often. Um, how do you, do you find yourself sort of in a different space from, from, um, more mainstream children's publishing, or more traditional, I should say, because of that uh, sense of <laughs> that that ominous sense that some of your, um, your pictures might have. Yes, though um, that would, if you'd asked me that uh, when I first published my initial uh, book, uh, The Garden of Abulgazesi, I would have said yes, because there were very few examples of. Work that was in black and white, right. work that seemed to be using the tools of the artist to create a kind of an atmosphere. Yes. Back in 1979, my wife, who was encouraging me to think about mm-hmm. doing this, and used uh, picture books in her uh, elementary school art classes, brought a box home for me to see, and they were all brightly colored, 
had a kind of a purposeful naivete. Yes. They were silly. Yeah. Uh, kind of zany. And silly, kind of... zany, antic, playful. Yeah. So, yes, the, um, the, the, the careful, meticulous uh, rendering of, mm-hmm. uh, of a garden in charcoal pencil uh, was, was unlike other things. Mm-hmm. Not my intention. That was, that was simply all I was. That's uh, what you were doing. That was what I was <laughs> capable of doing. Uh, I think that there's a greater variety of, of image making now in kids' books. True. And you see things that uh, you could probably attach the word ominous to or scary or surreal. You're probably right. Yeah. You're probably yeah. right. Um, I read something very wise that you said in an interview with the Washington Post. Um, you said you don't show your work to anyone as you go. I think you said, if they don't like it, what am I supposed to do with that information? <laughs> Which I just really loved um, hearing that sentiment. And I wonder if that is a true, um, is true of how you operate and how you, how you work and how you make work today. Do you kind of keep it to yourself? Oh yeah, you absolutely. Tell us about that. Well, for one thing, it's one thing. It's um, at the outset, it's kind of delicate. I mean, it exists only as an idea, and an idea is fragile. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would never, I would never share an idea with someone, even an editor, about what I was planning on doing, because if they showed no interest in it or or uh, suggested it was not a great idea. Then I wouldn't even end up exploring it. I would, they might would have, die. Yeah. Well, yeah, but they would have. They would have popped my my bubble right right, right. there. And so, I'm sort of protective about the things, uh, or secretive, I should say, mm-hmm. maybe protective as well. <laughs> but uh, these things that I'm working on, and I, I still, um, in, in another sort of context, I, I was asked uh, by someone. When I was writing books for kids, but I, I was not a parent, so I had no kids in the house. And they would ask, uh, well, how, how could you possibly do that? As an adult, how could you write things for kids? Don't you, don't you have to bring kids in to, to be able to understand what would be interesting to them or what would hold their attention? And basically, they were suggesting that I go out in the neighborhood and get a focus group. <laughs> right. Get a focus group of like uh-huh. seven-year-olds, eight-year-olds, yeah. bring them in my house and read it to them. And... That would propose. That would that would present the same problem, you know. Well, now I wouldn't simply be changing what I intended to do because an editor or an adult suggested it, but now I would be taking my cues from from seven year olds <laughs> from elementary schoolers. Yeah, yes, <laughs> getting feedback from the seven year olds and and wondering, oh, am I on the right track? Mm-hmm. And so I've always, um, I mean, there, in some ways you could see it as, I don't know, in, in a sense, kind of aloof or arrogant. But but mm-hmm. I've always felt really strongly that uh, an awareness of your audience contaminates the artistic process. If you're really thinking about mm-hmm. who's going to read it, whether they're going to like it, um, then uh, it's the, you, you've undermined the process. It's not, it's not where it should be happening. <laughs> uh, yeah, I have to say I agree with you entirely on that. Um, but it also does feel like um, it's such an important part of how artists work, and it 
um, it seems to be not the the way the world is going. It seems like the culture now is about sharing on social media and everywhere, everything about where you are and what's happening. Right, right. And, and constantly and, looking and for approval is, with and, likes. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> and you're not doing that. You're keeping your stuff to yourself, which is noble and obviously. Right. Well, it's not, I, I should make clear that it, it's not that I don't care if people like what I do. I would prefer that they like of it. Of course. Than not, than not like it. Uh-huh. But I'm not going to give it any thought before I finish it. Right. <laughs> Right. And how how long does it take you to finish it? Your, your drawings, many of them are very um, detailed and very precise. Um, how long does, does that take you? Well, maybe, maybe even longer than you might imagine mm-hmm. because uh, I work larger than the, the reproduced size. So the, the, the images in my books are generally about uh, twice as large, sometimes even larger than that, than they appear in the book. So that makes them a little bit more time-consuming than you might imagine. Mm-hmm. And I am quite deliberate. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, all my methods, all the sort of materials I work with, I, I use meticulously rather than uh, what you might call gesturally or yes. expressively. Yes. I'm fussy. Um, <laughs> so I make my fussy drawings, and I make them slowly because I hate the idea of having gotten two-thirds into it and, and decided, oh, this isn't right. Uh, and I would have to you know, throw it in the trash can and start mm-hmm. over. I don't really say this with much pride, but I, uh, I've i never done a drawing over. <laughs> but that's, but, Why but not that, say that with pride? <laughs> that, well, that well okay. because, because people say, well, if you've never done a drawing over, certainly you must have done a drawing that you thought could be better, and you should have given it another shot and done it mm-hmm. again and, mm-hmm. and, and made the better drawing. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> of course, I've felt that way really in a, in a sense about all my books. If I could do them over again, I would do them over. But one of the reasons uh, it takes me as long as it does to make a drawing is because I'm going so slow I don't want to make a mistake. Most of the materials I work in can't be revised. Once you put the mark on the paper, it's there. Charcoal is charcoal. Charcoal is charcoal. Pen and ink is pen and ink. Uh, some of these oil pastels, they 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 don't move around much. So I... I'm a slow and deliberate worker. So to answer your question, mm-hmm. uh, a drawing can take a week. A drawing can take 10 days. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so add it up. Uh, if you spend 10 days on a drawing and there's 15 drawings in there, you've you got a half a year. Right. Yeah. Right. That's if you're working every day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, maybe you could tell us a little more if you're willing to share about how you work. Do you work in a studio? Do you wake up and have every idea and go to it? Or do you come to things more slowly? Uh, yeah, I'm not quite as, as deliberate when I'm uh-huh. thinking about an idea for a story as I am when I'm actually making the art for it. But it's... Uh, it's slow and it's slow and tentative for me because I write picture books. I can conceive of, essentially, compose the whole story in my head. Mm-hmm. It's only it's, there are thirty two pages, half of its pictures, so that's that's a sixteen page book with big type. Mm-hmm. So I can sort of hold that in my head. Mm-hmm. So I I can um, lay down on a couch and <laughs> and, and work on a story. Yeah. Because I don't have to have the pen and paper in my hand. Yeah. To to work on work on it. But when I have it worked out in my head, then I'll sit down and write a draft. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then I'll make, uh, I'll start doing some sketches, you know, and it sort of proceeds uh, 
those 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 two elements of the picture book, the the story and the picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, they may they may start with, with a kind of a a, a visual uh, inspiration, mm-hmm. which then becomes uh, a narrative idea, which I then pursue. But all the while that's happening, I'm seeing the thing in my mind's eye, and then there's a point where I just start writing um, uh, some some drafts, and, and then I'll draw little thumbnail sketches, and and it sort of proceeds together at that point. I love talking about this process, and um, I, w- I would like to switch gears a little bit and talk about the process um, that you have utilized in uh, some of the adaptations to film that your books have taken. Um, so it sounds like when you're working on picture books, it is a very personal and, um, did you say protected earlier? Or secret? Well, well yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is so... Protect it, keep it secret. The, it's it's very different from a Hollywood movie, which it, which has hundreds of people working on it, which goes to a very wide audience and is very, it's just very different. Yeah. Um, can you talk about um, any involvement that you have had um, in any part of those those movie projects. I know that there have been a few, so maybe right, right. there are different levels for each one. But yeah, so Jumanji yeah. Uh, one, yes, from ninety five, ninety five. Excuse me. I had some involvement in that. The studio uh, optioned the book, and mm-hmm. and that's like a uh, that's like a big deal for authors when a film studio comes around. I shouldn't say that. Uh, it's a big deal. It, well, it is. I'm not sure for all authors, but in general, the the proposition uh, of a studio buying the film rights to something you've written and turning it into film feels like a real kind of triumph. And and uh, uh, and it is in a way. But if they option if they option your book, you you might be tempted to go out and pop a, a, a cork on a bottle of champagne. <laughs> but the fact is, uh-huh. uh, studios spend a great deal of money optioning properties that never become films. And I'm, I, I've heard varying figures, but it's approximately uh, only 5% of optioned books actually get turned into films. So if, if you have your book optioned, you can go pop the cork on your uh, on your bottle of champagne mm-hmm. and go ahead and drink it but there is a, a, a 19 and 20% chance that the films that your books never going to get made into a film and, right. uh, so i know i knew that going in and mm-hmm. and, and i'm a pessimist <laughs> and so i wasn't buying any champagne because they one are. bottle it's this is it right <laughs> yeah uh, well uh-huh. i'll tell you i'll tell you the point when you can pop the cor- the, the cork okay. but it's fairly late in the process but Anyway, I, uh, Sony was working on developing it. They had a few scripts that they didn't like so much. They were sending them to me because I wasn't a producer or anything, but out of respect for the rights holder, they share mm-hmm. the, the process. They aren't really interested in your opinion. I think it's more, almost more a courtesy mm-hmm. that they send you the scripts. So they sent me uh, some scripts. They were unhappy with the direction it was taking, and it looked as if they were going to uh, let the option lapse and just not uh, not exercise the option. Mm-hmm. So I thought that there was some some good material in these scripts, but they weren't. It wasn't being exploited properly, and so I I wrote a little treatment of my own, uh, you know, seven or eight pages, uh, a different story that could be told with some of the some of the story premise that was original to the screenwriters. So I, I, I wrote that, 
sent it out to Sony, and and they liked it a lot. Hmm. And um, uh, so I did something a little bit more elaborate for them at their request, mm-hmm. and uh, sent that back to them. And they then they used that uh, to develop the screenplay. Uh huh. So that's why in the uh, in the credits I actually have a story credit, and that's not mm-hmm. a story credit for having written the book. It's a story credit for having contributed to the story, the premise, which became the, the screenplay. Right. <clears throat> the division right. of labor in Hollywood <laughs> is is, uh, is unusual, but uh, so in in that film. I did have a, a fair amount of influence because right at the outset there, I was actually getting some of my ideas incorporated. We're guiding uh, it. Uh, uh, well, that would be uh, uh, describing my influence maybe a little bit greater I than see. it was. <laughs> but I was, I, I was contributing and, 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 yeah, having some influence. Um, so in that, the thing that I wrote was actually uh, – uh, more like an extended Twilight Zone uh, mm-hmm. episode. <laughs> and, and they took that, and they liked parts of it, but they wanted to make an action movie. So it mm-hmm. became more of an action movie than a, an extended Twilight Zone episode. Uh, but it turned out to be a pretty good movie, and I, I liked it and, um, and felt fortunate because that's not an experience every author has. Sometimes uh, authors have films made from their books that, that fill them with shame and regret. <laughs> Um, but I felt I felt good about Jumanji, and um, uh, mm. and, and that was the one I probably had the most influence on. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, some years later, Polar Express was made, and I, I and, and that group of filmmakers was actually uh, even more kind of respectful of of my opinion, uh, but maybe less receptive to the ideas that I had for how to expand the story and and embellish it, augment it. I remember pitching these ideas, and, and they'd say to me, Chris, you sound like a producer. Please. <laughs> you know, they were surprised that an author would be interested in, in you know, having such liberties taken with their work. But I, my position was, no matter what the book is, if you're going to make a film, you want the film to be as good as it can be. And if it means not being absolutely faithful to the book or adding a lot of material that's not even suggested in the book, if you're making a better film, that's the direction you should go. Right. Uh, but they, but they were very serious about making something that was a, 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 you know, absolutely faithful to the book, a kind of an homage to the book, and mm-hmm. I, I couldn't complain about that. And that too, turned out to be uh, a, a good film. Like the film, it's an odd Christmas film because it's kind of spooky. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it has a kind of has a kind of darkness and melancholy to it. Yeah. And and so I, I reflect on that, and I say, well, gee, I, that makes it an unusual. Christmas film, but then when I open up the pages of my book and look at it, I have to concede that there's a kind of a dark, melancholy quality to the thing I wrote. Right. So there you have it. And, and it's a very popular Christmas book. It, it, it does resonate with people. Christmas isn't all happy all the time for everyone. So um, I think that's one of its charms, the book's charms. Um, Thank you. And so the new film, uh, I would love to, for you to talk about the new film a little bit and then the connection about why you're here um, talking to me about it yeah. here in Michigan yeah. and the wonderful cause that you're supporting in connection with the film. Right. So um, uh, some when they made Jumanji 1, uh, they were determined to make a exploit that with a sequel mm-hmm. because <laughs> that's the financial model in Hollywood. If, yeah. if you make a film and it succeeds, uh, 
try to tap into that audience that you've already established, already created, with a with a sequel uh, of some kind. So the studio worked on that for quite a while and, and uh, once again struggled with scripts that they were willing to greenlight. Mm-hmm. And at a point, um, I offered up a new idea to them, which was that uh, the Jumanji game board actually included on its backside uh, a space adventure game. And that's actually the way early board games were made because they would just print a second game on the back side. You flip it over and you use the tokens and you play another game. Something else. Basically yeah. the same game, but it had a different name. You know. <laughs> right. So I, I thought in Jumanji, it, the last page shows two young boys, Danny and Walter Budwing, running away with a Jumanji game under their arm. And there's a description of them that suggests that they will not have a good time with the game. <laughs> they, 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 right. will, they will be challenged by it. Right. Um, so when, when the studio uh, made the film, they, of course, owned any intellectual property that was introduced in the film. They owned the rights to make a sequel to the film, but they did not own the rights to make a sequel to the book because mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a right that I had as the author. So I made a sequel to Jumanji the book, not Jumanji the film, and it was Danny and Walter Budwing and what happened to them when they played the space adventure game. And that became Zathura. And so the studio... Uh, really liked the idea of a thorough space adventure game So because it's, it's a house that goes into outer space, yes. which is kind of nicely bookends the idea of the jungle coming into your house. This yes. is a house going to outer space. So they made that film, and um, they thought, well, I guess that's Jumanji too, but they weren't sure because <laughs> okay. they didn't promote it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then some years have passed, and they still believe that there was golden in our hills and okay. they, they believe that we, we now we should make a we should make a bona fide jumanji too so they made it mm-hmm. so anyway um when the polar express came out uh we were um uh contacted by hospice of michigan mm-hmm. in grand rapids where i grew up mm-hmm. and they had learned i guess about a the jumanji premiere Jumanji one premiere I'd done in Rhode Island, where my wife was on the board of the Children's Hospital, uh-huh. and she'd organized a premiere for Jumanji, East Coast premiere for Jumanji, to benefit uh, the Rhode Island Children's Hospital. And they'd learned about this, and they thought, would you be interested in doing a premiere like that in Grand Rapids to benefit Children's Hospice? And uh, so we were totally on board with it. Uh, and um, it, it, you need uh, you, you need to have an in. You can't just you know, say, hey, I'm going to have a premiere. You have to call the studio. The studio has to approve of it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they actually support it uh, in various ways. Uh, so we, we did that, and we had the Polar Express premiere. And Grand Rapids is a great success, raised a lot of money. And then a few years later, we had the Zathura premiere in Grand Rapids, once again for uh, Children's Hospice in Grand Rapids. Mm-hmm. And it's so great to be able to just uh, be in a position where you can, you know, call the producer of the film, tell them, you know, this is really important to him, and, and, and he'll say, whatever I can do. You know? It's fantastic. And, and yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Uh, so this is two different studios, Sony and Warner Brothers, but they're both, you know, just ready to help in any way yeah. they could. And so uh, uh, when Jumanji 2 was uh, in, um, pre-produ- or in production, 
my wife was already calculating, uh, you know. <laughs> uh, so she got back in touch with hospice in Grand Rapids and possibly uh, um, it might have been hospice that got in touch with her because they'd heard about it. But there was no way that we were going to miss the opportunity to, to, to have another premiere and, and uh, not only raise money for hospice, but uh, use the opportunity to uh, make the – uh, make people aware of its mission, its goal, its purpose. So, and what is their website? Can you, is it? Uh, there's a um, Jumanji uh, for the, the Jumanji for, for anchor for anchors dot org is yes. uh, is Jumanji uh, for anchors dot org for uh, this program or hom.org, org hospice of Michigan dot org and uh, the first address is actually for people who would like to times a wasting. <laughs> but but uh, attend the uh, the premiere in Ann Arbor or Grand Rapids, which mm-hmm. will happen tomorrow evening. Uh, but of course, uh, if they can't, there's nothing that prevents them from showing their support of the organization. Of course, in they other should. Ways. Yes, right, right. and thank you for supporting it. Um, oh, it is well, it is good work. It feels like I mean it really feels like a, a you know a privilege. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's pretty terrific to be yeah. doing the good work that you're doing, and then making it go further with with uh, that support of Hospice of Michigan. Um, right. So, and mm-hmm. this will air after the events in Ann Arbor and Grand Rapids. So, we'll again give the uh, the web address of hom.org. Oh Hospice yeah, of right, 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 yeah, yeah. So, so I yeah, think if that you're listening to this now, you missed it. I'm if, sorry. <laughs> I'm sure it was a great <laughs> event and really wonderful. Um, but yeah, but people can still support Hospice of Michigan and support your support. I I encourage them to do so. It's a wonderful organization. Good, good. Um, Shall we take a short music break? We'll uh, ask our engineer, Frank, to play us just a short bit. And we'll be back in a moment with Chris Van Allsburg on Living Writers. This is the Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm Amanda Yuli, and we're here with Chris Van Allsburg, author and illustrator of many, many picture books, um, including Jumanji, uh, whose second film adaptation is out in theaters this December. Um, thanks for being here, Chris. It's been so nice to get to know you here. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to talk about one thing that strikes me most every time I, I look at your books, which is this amazing sense um, of the things that children do out of sight of their parents, um, that there is this sort of fascinating world of childhood. Um, can you talk about whether that is a conscious kind of theme in your work or whether that is just a weird thing that is in my mind <laughs> about what you do? Um, well, I, I mostly write fantasies. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess in my mind, uh, an adult presence is uh, is a cold shower. Kids in the way, yeah, yeah. And, and, and because they're 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 
either going to, uh, in, in some ways, be an obstacle to the mm-hmm. to the action that I want to have proceed, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think uh, the, the idea of these fantastic things happening in the absence of your parents is, in some ways, more thrilling to the child. That it's that, so thrilling. That yes, this, this could happen to me. Yes, and and my mom or dad wouldn't be there, and and. Uh, it would be okay. Yeah. The, the adults <laughs> are all always these sort of unknowing uh, forces, uh, I, I see, in your books. And um, and I think what, what's really beautiful is to see these kind of indelible images that you have for children where uh, there are things that they can kind of anchor and hang on to, things they know, like, the, like a living room, and then something very exotic like a python in it or a <laughs> couple of stampede Right, rhinos. right. Well, that was uh, – that, in that – Particular book, Jumanji. Uh-huh. Uh, that was a. I, I seized on the idea of uh, cognitive dissonance uh-huh. in a picture, right? Where you, where you, there's nothing unusual about. Well, if you've seen National Geographic, nothing unusual about a, a rhino stampede, right? And nothing unusual about a dining room, but putting a, a rhino stampede in a dining room uh, really triggers the cognitive dissonance. Right. It sort of allows children to do that. And I think because you don't have any adults in the room, they can really get in there and say, oh, okay, this is what's happening. We've got the rhinos. we got the dining room. Um, and it's just a magical thing that you bring to life in your books. Um, I ask every guest on The Living Writer Show to tell us what you're reading right now. Are you? A, do you primarily read picture books? Do you read other things? Talk about your reading life a little. Uh, I read a fair amount of nonfiction, though. Right now I'm reading some fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh uh, Paris in the Present Tense, a book by Mark Halpern, who is an author that I collaborated with uh, uh-huh. some years ago. Uh, you illustrated uh, his work. Yeah, right? he wrote uh, he wrote a trilogy, mm-hmm. uh, and I provided the pictures. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was um, it wasn't a, a, a thing that I was interested in doing, but I remember when uh, a representative of his called me, and without identifying the author. Uh, said, well, I'm, I'm representing this author, and he's written this. As an interest in writing this children's book, initially it was just a single volume. It went on to be a trilogy. And I'm sort of getting ready to give my speech, you know, unless mm-hmm. it's Lewis Carroll come back from the dead, <laughs> I, I, I'm going to stick with my own stuff. Yeah. And he told me it was Mark Halpern, and, and Winter's Tale is one of my favorite books of all time. And mm-hmm. I said, well, if I could uh, illustrate something that Mark Halpern had written, um, uh, mm-hmm. sign me up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's what you're reading now. I'm that's reading that, yes. Spending your time. Yeah. Um, the other question I ask everyone is um, about advice for young or aspiring writers. Um, and I would expand that in your case to young or aspiring illustrators yeah. with picture books. Do you have uh, any go-to advice? Right. Well, I, I get asked enough, so I've okay, <laughs> yeah. come up with some uh, Ideas, uh, but and one of them actually is uh, a little bit like the, the notion that that thinking about who's going to see your stuff and, mm-hmm. and what audience will have, uh, how that contaminates the artistic process. But I think a, it, in a different way that if you sit down to write and think of yourself as a published author and what what mm-hmm. it will take to be that, uh, you are not you're not truly in in the process you should be writing because you love to write mm-hmm. you should be writing because when you get done uh 
if the thing catches on fire and burns up, that's okay with you because you liked what you were doing while you were writing it. If somebody doesn't have that experience while they're writing, I'm not sure it's possible to to make it happen. But it can, and I, I think it can by the obvious motivation for writers or inspiration for writers is simply to read a lot. And and if you read things that you like and, and you and you see something that happens on a page and you admire it, you can't figure out quite how it happened, mm-hmm. to to sit down and try to do something like it and, and and maybe that process of trying to emulate things that you've seen can turn you into that person who just likes the process, who just likes the writing, uh, whether no one, uh, if it will, if it's just a diary entry that you'll lock away and no one will ever see, but to fall in love with the idea of, of committing your thoughts to page with words. So, so that's what you have to do as a writer. As an artist, it's probably a little bit of the same thing. You, you just have to enjoy the process and draw things that, um, uh, that are interesting to you. Draw things that you like to draw. Don't don't wonder about uh, what the audience is. I guess it would be sort of like, a, um, you know, that old saying, dance like nobody's watching, yes. sing like <laughs> nobody's listening. Yeah, so write like no one will ever read it mm-hmm. and uh, make pictures like no one will ever see them. <laughs> because it's for you, right? It's for yourself. It, it's for you. And, and, yeah. and, 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 and it could be at the end that you've created something that, that everyone... Uh, is dying to see. Well, and they'll know, option it and, and it'll yeah, be right, something right, else right. and have but, another uh, life. But yeah. The, the, mm-hmm. the, um, if you want to, if, you, if you're, this activity, the, being an artist for me was, a, was an enriching thing in my life. Hmm. And I think that even if I wasn't successful, I think I would have continued to do something. It may have been I started building model boats again. <laughs> but but the idea of having an activity that you can just do because it's so rewarding and satisfying to you, regardless of how it plays into some greater scheme of your of success in life, but just to have something that that uh, nurtures your imagination. Uh, just think of it that way, and don't think of it as a, as, as the you know a step on the ladder to success. Wise words. Thank you, Chris Van Alsberg, for joining us today. Thank you, Frank Uli, for engineering the show. This is the Living Writer Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm Amanda Uli, and I think we're going to close with Pure Imagination, which yes. is another song you chose uh, by Anthony Newley. Thank you, Chris. You're welcome.
To episode three of Wolverine Hockey Wednesdays. If you're here with us live, you are listening to 88.3 WCBN FM Ann Arbor. If not, thank you for tuning in wherever you get your podcasts. I am your host for today's proceedings, William Gregory. I'm joined by Luke Beely, Kobe Siegel, and Charlie Mitchell. Fellas, how are we doing today? Doing well. How are you doing? Fantastic. So we're going to talk a bit about the NHL. The season started last night, Tuesday, October 10th, with a few exciting games. And it'll continue on uh, for the foreseeable future. But first, we're going to tackle Michigan hockey teams. Last week, we had a few members of the women, Michigan uh, women's ice hockey team in, Sandrine Poneth and Robin Goldman. They swept their series up in Sault Ste. Marie, beating Lake Superior State in both games they played. Moving on to the men's team, they beat Simon Fraser 8-1. to That happened on September 30th, but we didn't talk about it on this show yet. And they split the weekend set against 18th-ranked Providence, Losing the first game two to four, winning the second game five to four, uh, with Providence having their furious comeback attempt thwarted. I think they were down five to two in the third period and score two um, in the third. Gavin Brindley has a goal in the first game, goal in the second. Uh, Frank Nazar has two goals in the second game. So, if you guys saw the Wolverines hockey team this past weekend, what do you think about them? I didn't get to watch any of that game, but um, I know Providence has a pretty solid squad. Um, Michigan's got a lot of newcomers, transfers. Uh, freshman coming in, so I'm not really worried about the team. Um, uh, give the first couple games to uh, gel together, and uh, this is a team that'll be fine. Yeah, I did the to the game on Sunday. They won five to four, but 